0: This episode of My Financial Life is sponsored by Manulife. As a trusted partner of Alumni UBC, the Manulife program is dedicated to helping UBC alumni get access to preferred rates on life, health and dental, and travel insurance. Find out more at alumni.ubc.ca manulife. From alumni UBC, this is My Financial Life, a podcast mini-series about personal finance. On this episode, host Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, speaks to Bernard Laton, the head of Health and Asset Management Canada at Manulife, about the benefits of working with a financial advisor.
1: I'm a Bernard Laton, and I am the head of Wealth and Asset Management Uh, for Manulife I for for Canada. So I run all of our wealth uh, and asset management businesses here, which include um, uh, retail, pension, institutional, and advisory.
2: Oh, cool. And one thing that I noticed is when I went through your LinkedIn is that you write a lot of articles, and there are quite a few interesting ones, and I thought I would start with one of them where you talked about the automation of the wealth management industry and automation in general um, there's a lot of people out there who are fearful of this change and this new disruption. What do you have to say to them?
1: Well, I, um, I, I think we need to be mindful you know, that the world is changing. We're going through uh, a lot of technical, uh, technological change. It's, it's not the first time, right, as a uh, species that we've gone through major technological revolutions, uh, and I think... You know, the, the whole uh, uh, digital AI uh, transformation that we're going through right now is, is, is a very important one, and, and it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to predict the effects it's going, to be, it's going to have. I think it will have some important effects, and I think people are quite concerned because we are seeing uh, automation at a different level, if you want. Like, if you go back to automation in the um, uh, industrial space, Basically, you, know, you were talking about physical robots that were taking over some physical jobs, uh, and I think a lot of people were looking at that and going, well, you know, in my industry, in what I do, I work in services, I work in some kind of professional occupation, uh, you know, automation is never really going to affect me. But it's starting to dawn on people that automation will be affecting, uh, you know, some of us in, in, in the services and the professional trades. Uh, and uh, AI uh, is a bit the, the incarnation of that. Um, you know, an example that, you know, you mentioned uh, you know, that LinkedIn uh, article recently. Well, one of the examples I use in that article is the fact that you now have algorithms that are better than human doctors. At spotting tumors, you know, cancerous tumors, Um, and 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 that's interesting, and it's a bit unsettling because, frankly, you know, we think of doctors and especially specialists as being some of the most, you know, celebrated professionals in our society, and and here come you know the algorithms, and they do something better than you know those professionals, so it's, it's unsettling. So it's definitely something that is happening uh, it's happening in law it's happening in medicine i think it's happening across many industries and we need to be mindful of it but i think in some respects we as humans can immunize uh you know to a point uh against those impacts uh and and that is by focusing i think on what makes us really unique as humans right what are our unique capabilities and unique contributions um, and, I mean, we we could talk a lot about that, but to me, that is really about focusing on our unique humanity, uh, as opposed to, you know, what machines can easily take over.
2: So, do you, do you consider them more of a tool as opposed to a replacement? Because I can't picture anybody replacing a doctor because of that whole bedside manner. I mean, yeah. it's hard to mimic that, but… If, if I can take an app, which I've heard they can do, and take a picture of my face or a mole and they can diagnose that, I think that's a phenomenal tool, particularly in, because it can be used all around the world.
1: Well, I, I agree with you, and I'll, I'll use an example that I've, you know, I've, I've used previously from my own industry. So, you know, in the financial services industry, um, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you have financial advise, uh, advisors, and we know that they, they, they offer good advice, and it makes a difference for people. Now, more and more, you are seeing automation of some components in the value chain. There are things that algorithms can do more effectively uh, than a human uh, can. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's actually quite good and powerful. But I still believe that there's going to be human advisors because when it comes to the most important decisions in their lives, I think people will still want to deal with a human. And what I mean by that is that You know, the the value, let's say, of an advisor is not specifically about creating a portfolio and rebalancing and doing trades and all that. But the the greatest value that they add is things like, you know, having a conversation with the client about, you know, savings habits, Uh, you know, talking to the client off ledge when they're looking to buy a Harley at 52 and and really, you know, do you think that this is your nest egg and maybe you should be doing that. So it's really about you know influencing people uh, on things that make them humans, uh, and and I think that humans will be better at doing that than machines. But more importantly, I think when it comes to these decisions, people will want to do deal with other humans on that.
2: Yeah, it's kind of hard to get input from a from an algorithm about. Things like buying houses. I mean, they could probably crunch the numbers for you, but actually, there's a lot more variables at stake when you when you're considering some of those decisions. Big, big financial decisions. Um, how how does manual life? Have you embraced this new technology, or how how do you use it, or how do you get your advisors to use these these algorithms or AI in their day-to-day operations?
1: Well, I, I think more and more, like any large financial institution, you know we are making uh, investments in technology and and we we know that digitization is is a key component of the future. Um, you know, we believe in in human advisor advice, but we believe that we need to equip our advisors with tools to make them more productive. So, for instance, you know, something like, I don't know, uh, doing a change of address, like there was a time where if you wanted to change your address, you had to physically pick up the phone and call someone. You know, the days now are here where, you know, you can self-serve on things of that nature and it's just more efficient. And it's not something that differentiates you, right? Like, um, you know, you're not getting a huge amount of value from changing your address. You just want it to be fast and efficient. So, I, I, I think the way we're looking at these things is, at the end of the day, like, you know, if, if you believe that, you know, your, your uh, professional is somebody who is, uh, you know, uh, a valuable uh, resource who has an important job to do, you want to free that person up to focus on what is most important in, in, in their job. So back to the example, I think, earlier about the, uh, the doctor, and, and, and you were mentioning, you know, a map that allows you to diagnose something more, you know, effectively, faster and better. Uh, but you still want to have a human doctor, because at the end of the day, that, you know, uh, that support that the doctor gives, you know, that ongoing communication, uh, uh, you know, the actual treatment, All of those things, you know, if if you can do the diagnostic much faster and then move on to the higher value type of of activities, I think that is a good thing. So that's the way we're looking at it. Like, we're essentially looking uh, not to replace people, but to uh, uh, unleash them uh, from low value type of activities so that they can focus on what really makes a difference for people.
2: So... We, we hear that there's a, an uptick in options for people who want to invest their money. And uh, one of the sort of trends in the last couple of years is robo-advisors offering sort of a low-cost, uh, all-in-one type of a solution. How, how do those robo-advisors sort of fit into uh, the industry? Is there a place or is it too much on the robo-algorithm side, not enough on the human side?
1: Well, listen, I, I, I believe in, in, in free competition and open markets. So I, I welcome new entrants to the industry. I think that is, uh, you know, uh, innovation in action, and, and that's good. We all, we all benefit from that. And what you've seen is that some of that innovation then uh, makes its way into, you know, the business processes of the incumbents, right? So some organizations have been around for a long time, and because of disruption from new entrants, they have to up their game. They have to get better at whatever they do. So, so that is good. So, you know, specifically around robo-advisors, I think robo-advisors have a place. I think that they do something that is good and useful for a given population. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, there's still going to be a, a need for human advice and for, uh, you know, people coaching people uh, on matters of financial wellness, um, and and for that, I think that you know human advice is going to be better than, than robo advice. So it's, it's really about you know getting the service that uh, you know meets the needs that you have as a consumer. So if as a consumer, uh, what you need is a uh, you know a a portfolio uh, that you know is tailored to a specific risk profile, your situation is not very complicated, you're looking for investments, uh, but without the advice or with what I would call lighter advice, then I think that could meet your needs. But, I mean, I started my career as a financial advisor a long time ago, and what I find interesting is that, you know, some people say, well, you know, um, it's, it's different from what it was. I, I don't know to what extent it's different because, you know, when I was 25, I had no money. I didn't really have a need for an advisor. And as your situation evolves and it becomes more complex and you have, you know, you, you feel a need for for help and support around that, well, you may no longer feel comfortable doing it on your own or doing it with an algorithm. So, to me, you know, I see all of these services on a continuum, uh, and at one end of that continuum, you'll have type, do-it-yourself type of options. At the other end of the continuum, you're going to have high-touch you know, uh, uh, services with heavy human involvement and, and a whole continuum in between.
2: Yeah, so I guess what I'm hearing is that maybe younger people who seem to grav- gravitate to robo-advisors, that might be a suitable option for them because their, their needs aren't as big as say someone who's closer to retirement. Um, the, the one section that I often get asked about is the in-between group. So there's, what I find is, what I hear from clients or people looking for an advisor is, a lot of them will have minimum amounts that they need to deal with. So like an advisor might say they'll only deal with clients who have half a million dollars or a million dollars worth of investable assets. And they can do that because they're sought after, because they're they're really good at estate planning, trust planning, retirement planning, all that sort of a thing. So they want to have fewer clients. Um, so there's that little gap in between people that have like 100 to 150,000 to 200,000 that they really have a hard time finding good advisors. Um, is there a solution for them?
1: Well, I, I think it's uh, there's multiple angles to that question. One of them is that, um, conceivably somebody in their 50s might be happy with a, a robo-advisor in the same way somebody in their 30s may actually want the interaction with a human advisor. Right. So I'm not sure that it would make you know a, a broad categorization like that. Um, but, but your point about some advisors having high minimums and not wanting to deal with smaller clients, I mean, again, that's where you know, different business models in the industry, you know, come into play. Uh, There are advisors out there. They're absolutely happy to take a smaller client. Uh, They can do it for, you know, for different reasons. Maybe they are dealing with a younger person, for instance, because uh, it's part of uh, a household, a a family group that they're taking care of. Right. Uh, Maybe they do it because they believe that they have a social mission uh, and they believe that helping people, you know, uh, with their finances is good and desirable and they will do it. And not every client will be a big client. So I think there's different business models out there. And I, I would never, you know, pass judgment on, you know, one or another. Uh, again, this is the beauty of having, you know, free markets where people are actually uh, uh, able to, um, you know, to do business in the way they want to do it.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point because uh – that's, that's, what I, that's one piece of advice I often give people who are looking for an advisor. And maybe they're, maybe they're younger. Maybe they're in their 20s or 30s. I always ask them who, they, who their parents deal with because presumably their parents have more money. And often they'll find that those advisors will take on the, the, the children of their clients and offer them the same deal or um, offer them the same services. So, yeah, that's, that's a good way of, of looking at it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and maybe if, if I could just add a, a bit of an analogy from a completely different world, like from the world, world of sports, uh, you know, you've got coaches out there that will only take on elite, you know, national-level athletes. And you have other coaches out there that do community programs. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do, right? They, they, if they happen to have a young athlete that grows up through the ranks and becomes really, really good, typically they will hand the, their athlete over to uh, a coach that is more you know, specialized around high performance. And, and you actually need in your ecosystem, you need all of that, right? You need community sports and, and coaches. You need high performance, and you need something in between. And, and your ecosystem as a whole would not work if you didn't have all of that. Right. And I, I think this financial advice is, is not that different.
2: Do you, do you find that it's harder for actual financial advisors to get into the industry right now? Because they're competing um, with uh, Robo advisors and they might not have a big book that they can rely on?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting uh, question, uh, Mark. Like if if, if I, if I reminisce for a second, like when I started in the industry, like I was in my uh, early uh, 20s and back in those days, uh, the way it worked is that you know the commission structure for financial products in the industry was completely different so i i actually back then i used to get compensated on uh uh you know up on two years of of deposits so let's say like i was 25 let's say and you know i met with somebody who wanted to save start saving money um let's say the person wanted to save hundred dollars a month so over two years, you know, a hundred times twenty-four months, and I would earn a commission on that. And the commission rates back in those days were much, much higher than what they are today. By today's standards, that they would be they would be deemed to be egregious. Right now, what's interesting is that that business model back then um, actually created an incentive for me as a young advisor out of university to get on the subway because I didn't have a car back then. And, and travel halfway across the city uh, to give advice to a young client who had no money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and our interests were aligned. And, and again, by today's standards, people would say, well, the commissions were way too high. Uh, it's, 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 it's egregious. Having said that, there are people that I got started uh, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, fast forward 25 years, they've accumulated a lot. And one of the things that has really contributed to their well-being is the fact that they started young right so instead of starting saving at 35 they started at 25 because well they had a 25 year old advisor Hmm. and 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 we all know that you know the number of years that you save money is one of the biggest most important variables in your financial success so i've always thought that what really matters at, at the end of the day is outcomes so um, back then, that business model allowed young people to get into the business and gradually build their, uh, their book, of their clientele, and clients initially paid more as a percentage in terms of fees, but over time, it evened out, and they ended up having good outcomes. Nowadays, with all the changes in the industry, I think it's much harder for a young person to get into the industry on their own. So what's happened, well, you, you know this. What we've seen is more people you know, joining exa- existing practices, right? right? So they will join a practice as an associate advisor, uh, a junior to somebody else, or they will join a big financial institution in a salaried role. Mm-hmm. Now, is it better or is it worse? Um, I don't know. I think that when I was young and I, I did, you know, I worked for my clients, I think I was doing some good for them, and I'm still proud of what I did for them. But that way of getting into the industry nowadays is no longer available, I think.
2: Hmm. So it, it does seem a bit of a challenge. The, the other part I see is how people seek out those advisors. Because you mentioned that there's that group that would be more than happy to service someone who has maybe 80000 to $150,000. But what I'm hearing from a lot of people is they don't know where those advisors are because most people get referrals. So they'll, and they'll refer to someone who's who's had a very good experience. And often those referrals go to those people that have those minimum amounts. So what are those advisors that are perfectly happy to to take on this sort of the 80 to 150 to 200,000 clients? What are they doing to get their name out there so that they can be accessible?
1: Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I mean, there's tens of thousands of advisors in this country, and frankly, you know, I, I, I do meet with a lot of them, but, you know, I, I couldn't possibly generalize from, mm-hmm. you know, the limited exposure I've, I've got. E- even if I if I had conversations with hundreds of them, frankly, like, I, I think that's a limited sample. So I, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, except maybe to say that, um, for any kind of business, uh, whether, you know, you are a dentist operating your practice uh, or your financial advisor or, or any type of occupation, uh, the ability to actually market your services and, and get your name out there and, and be known for what you do um, is, is really key. And, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story, you know, because I, I think it's interesting. So my family and I, a few years ago, we were traveling. Uh, we were in Istanbul, and, and at one point, you know, our guide said, you need to go into the store, uh, you know, they have beautiful carpets. So my wife and I said, we don't really want to go in there, and, and you know, we got convinced. And so we go in, and, and we're, we're drinking our, our, I think it's apple tea that they served us, you know, because we're tourists. And I, I told the store owner at one point, I said, well, don't go through too much trouble uh, uh, un- unrolling your carpets us because to be really honest, like we-, we don't have any intention of buying anything. Mm-hmm. And the owner said this. He said, "Well, if I never show my carpets, I know with absolutely cer- absolute certainty that nobody will ever buy them. Right. My job is to actually show my carpets." And once in a while, somebody will actually want to buy one. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, my wife and I walked out of there with a carpet, okay. <laughs> which we had shipped back to Canada. But, but, but it's interesting. I mean, it, it is important. If you have a good and valuable service and you believe that what you do is actually good, right, it, it makes a difference, uh, you should be proud about marketing your services and putting yourself out there because, frankly, if you don't, nobody else will do it for you.
2: Yeah, so as a coach, because I I imagine you meet with a lot of advisors and you coach and manage them, um, those are sort of the messages that you're going to convey to them. What I find is we really have to have our value propositioned up front and center because we are competing with, well, various other advisors as well as now robots and algorithms. Yeah. Anything specific that or what are are some of your bigger tips that you – Go into your coaching sessions with uh, with new advisors or maybe even seasoned advisors.
1: Um. Well, you know, um, before I offer my thoughts, can I actually, you know, uh, flip it back to you? I'd be very interested in, in your own perspective. I mean, you said that it's important to have a value proposition, and uh, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, what, in your opinion, actually makes for a good value proposition?
2: Well, I think for in our practice, what we focus on is using, embracing AI and algorithms. Uh, we use it quite often, not just in the investment side, but in the what you mentioned in the client servicing side. So, what we find a lot of people are frustrated with are things like a lot of paperwork and actual physical paper because a lot of people are conscious of the environment and such. So we've invested a lot of money in things like having digital onboarding so that when clients sign up, they they could basically sign up, be a client, and not have any paper whatsoever. Yeah. Um, other things are looking at economy of scales. Uh, we, we, pool, we have pool funds, so we try to get institutional pricing, which tends to have... Uh, it's much cheaper with better services because it's, again, back to your point of saying we're focused on what we're good at, which is more of the the advice piece. So we talk about wills, w- w- um, trust when it's appropriate, uh, tax planning, and all a bunch of things. We talk about almost anything that does deals with finances or family life in general, whether yeah. someone's getting married, uh, getting divorced, buying a car, we're, we're open to all those types of conversations. So what it does is uh, we, get an, we get a bond, with the clients we get a bond with their family so we'll take on smaller clients as well and uh, people find that that's a value add and it's transparency that's what we get a lot we hear a lot of yeah. people really appreciate the transparency so we we keep uh, people up to date with what's going on in our industry what we're worried about uh, and as well as the market stuff but yeah what i find is when we meet with clients we end up spending maybe five to ten minutes talking about their portfolios or what's going on in the markets and then uh, the rest of the conversation is more of what's going on in their lives and what they're going through and whether we can offer opinions on various things
1: so so what what I find interesting is that as I listen to you like you you sound like a financial coach to me right and 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 to me that's important because like to use an analogy uh, uh, I don't know if you wear a Fitbit but an awful lot of people wear Fitbits now, right? And they mm-hmm. have apps on their phones where they, they have, you know, uh, exquisitely detailed data, right, on how many hours they sleep, and did they sleep well or not. Like, you don't wake up and wonder if you slept well, you ask your phone if you slept well nowadays, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and, and how many steps you take and all that. So, data and information all, are all, all around us, And and your, your, your algorithm, your app can tell you, well, you should walk more, you should do this and that. But what do people do with all their data when they really want to achieve a difficult objective? Well, they get a personal trainer, Right. and, and it's actually a, a booming industry, right? So, interestingly, hand in hand with the growth of all of the digital applications that we see around health, we are also seeing a booming uh, industry around uh, you know personal training and and health and wellness. And I think, like, we're, we're seeing these trends. They, they cut across industries. They're true for the financial services industry where clients have access to a whole lot of data. They have apps. They have algorithms. They have robo-advisors. So they have all of that. But many of them, when it comes to really important goals, will want to hire a personal coach. And, and whether it's for your health or your finances or things of that nature, I, I, I just see a lot of commonalities.
2: Yeah, I always use that analogy as well, like the, the parallels between fitness and financial health are, are very similar, you know, delayed gratification, certain amount of sacrifice in order to meet those ultimate goals. And uh, teaching those at I find at a, at a young age is very important. I mean, it's it's never too late. But uh, I, I, I like teaching this sort of thing. I go into high schools and I teach these lessons, hoping that, you know, these habits get formed quite early when when the mistakes aren't all that punitive, let's say we're talking about credit cards. If someone is going to college and, or university and they get their first credit card with a $500 limit and you make all the mistakes and you blow your $500 limit, well, that's not a too big of a hole that you have to dig yourself out of. But fast forward 10 years, that limit could be $20,000, $15,000, $25,000, and that's uh, much, harder, much harder to deal with, and it sets you back and really affects the outcomes of your future goals.
1: Yeah, so so on that, just to riff off your comment there, something interesting. I I wrote an article about this some time ago and and it got quite a lot of reactions. Like in our family, you know, our our kids are older now, they're all adults, you know, and, um, uh, but when they were growing up, my my wife and I deliberately uh, uh, would have very open financial conversations. Uh, uh, in their presence, uh, where our kids actually knew how much, you know, we earned as a family and how much we spent, and and all of these things we kept very transparent, and, and for, for many, many years, like, the picture wasn't that rosy, right, so the conversations were not all uh, that, you know, encouraging at times, but we wanted to have these very open conversations with our children because... A number of things. First of all, money is is still quite taboo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about money. Uh, it's a problem between generations, you know. Uh, when it comes to matters like you know, you know, who's going to inherit the money, for instance, you know, estate planning and whatnot. But it's true generally that that money is still very taboo. So we wanted to break that at least within our own family, and and when the children were young enough, I think, um, you know, that. Um, what they heard could influence and shape their perceptions to money, and and you know we did a number of things, but one of them was to you know keep it transparent.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I won't say I'm as transparent as you mm-hmm. are, but I do talk quite a bit about money with my children. So they're 14 and 12 right now, and I keep them accountable because uh, last summer we I bought a – pretty nice bike. I usually don't buy really nice things for my kids because they're growing and they grow out of them really quick. But I bought him a pretty nice bike because I wanted to go biking in the trails at Whistler with him. And I told him, look, I'm going to buy you this bike. um, Take care of it. Lock it up. Don't ride in the rain. This is is a trust test for you, right? So I'm giving him some rope here. And then uh, he did it. He used the bike. But then one day, it got stolen, and I asked him what happened. And he literally rode his bike to school because he was late. He rode that bike. He, he's supposed to ride a different bike. He didn't leave it locked, and someone stole it. So in my mind, he didn't. It wasn't even stolen. It was basically given away. But I'm in a pickle here because I still want to ride with my family. I want him to ride the bike in this in the summer. So what I did is he has to buy another bike, and he has to work for it. So I gave him a couple options of how he could do that, and one of them was I happen to be renovating a house right now, and every weekend we go there and he has to help me lay down floors or do trim or do whatever to earn that money to buy that bike back because I want him to know that there's consequences to his actions, and his actions was something that was completely preventable. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. it it's, it's, it's a great example of accountability. And, and, and maybe I'll, I'll give you another one. Maybe, maybe this one you're going to find radical. Some people listening may go, God, like, did you really do that? But, but we did. Um, so when our kids were ready to go to university, uh, you know, we basically said, you know, we got them together and we said, okay, this is your REST. Mm-hmm. And you each get a third. And we're not telling you how you're going to spend it. If you decide to you know, study in the city and stay at home, you just have you know, a longer run. Maybe you've got enough to fund graduate studies eventually. Um, if you decide to go study uh, elsewhere, uh, go away from home to do that, maybe you run out in a few years. Uh, it's your decision. Uh, when it runs out, it runs out. Uh, and, and this is your money. You manage it yourself. And and there you go. I mean, it was very interesting to see how they each approached this and took that accountability uh, of basically, you know, having to make their own decisions and live with the consequences. And I, I, I think it's really important, especially, you know, uh, as they were getting closer to university and, and, you know, you're about to go to university, and after that, I mean, you're going to be going out in the real world, uh, starting to build that accountability uh, around money and and your own finances.
2: Did they ask you for your advice, though?
1: Um. Very little, to be honest. (laughs) So, no, uh, I I, I can't say that they did, but, you know, uh, I'm I'm not sure that, you know, uh, at least in our house, I'm not sure that the parents are spontaneously the ones that they go to for advice. I think uh, I I get asked for advice from young people by kids that are not my kids, Uh, and and presumably my own children get advice from other people, but I'm not sure uh, who that would be.
2: Yeah, we should do a swap. I could talk to your kids. You could talk to mine. Same same sort of thing. I can't teach my kids anything. I mean, yeah. they learn a little bit from osmosis, and I, I do try to guide them. But ultimately, I do want them to fail. Like, that's, that's now is the time for them to fail and learn these lessons. So if they go out and make these decisions, like this bike being stolen, to me, that was a failure. He had a chance, yeah. and he failed it. And now I'm hoping, because he he's going to work for it and he's going to buy a new bike and i'm hoping that's going to make him better and more accountable for his own stuff. so that's that's what i'm hoping but uh we'll we'll see i'll i'll call you in a couple years and let you know what happens
1: (laughs) absolutely
2: Uh, so interesting that you basically gave carte blanche to have your kids do whatever they wanted with their resp i i haven't really thought about that too much about what i'd do that or not um did you not want to have a say? Because it is your money. You put the money in there, but you didn't want to give them any type of guidance of what kind of programs they should take or what kind of outcomes they should expect because it's an investment, right? It's an investment in themselves. Yeah. As an investment advisor or just being in the investment game, don't you want sort of the optimum type of outcome?
1: Well, listen, my, my... I'll all around, you know, um, whether here at work and the way that I, I, I try to lead the team and, 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 and with the children when it comes to financial decisions or life decisions of that nature, um, I, I believe in, in trust and accountability. And I, I, I don't believe that that kind of, you know, uh, uh stuff can can be imposed on people. I think it's going to come from within mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm always available if, if somebody wants you know to pick my brain or get advice. Uh, but I don't believe that I can impose advice in any kind of way. I, I, I know because I've tried you know over the years and found that it didn't work. so I, I, I just stopped you know doing it. So in this case specifically, like uh, my wife and I started putting money aside for an RESP when the kids were very young I, I like must have been like my oldest must have been a toddler, and, and frankly, I, I don't think we had you know you know dimes to rub you know together back then. So this was a real big priority for us, and it, it was a bit of long-term planning, right? Like 20 years a, a, ahead of time, you know, started you know to save for education. But we felt that education was really important. Now, what I'm going to say here, you're going to find you know maybe uh, uh, you know a, a bit of a paradox. Um, they picked their own programs we didn't have a say in it we didn't try to have a say we were open to having conversations you know we shared information to your point earlier through osmosis i'm hoping that they picked up and stuff but they really picked their own programs and, and this is the part that you may find surprising i don't think i have ever seen a transcript uh, uh, you know, uh, from any of my kids, uh, two of them are, are out of university, one is in third year. I've never asked for a transcript, I've never been given a transcript. Um, they're adults, right? So I feel that if they can't make their decisions right now and around their work ethic, uh, the programs they pick, the courses they pick, they drop off and whatnot, like soon they're going into the real world. And now is the time to actually learn these lessons and build mm-hmm. the accountability. Yeah,
2: no, that's, that's good. I'm uh, curious about whether your opinions would change if you didn't save in RESPs and you knew your, your children had to take on you know, upwards of $20,000 in debt to, to reach those educational goals.
1: Um, I don't think so. I'm going to answer knowing myself. So, um, I would say that scenario, no, I don't think it would bother me. Uh, if you've got, you know, you do what you've got to do, right? So, you know, you become a young adult and you have to learn life and, and, and life basically you learn by living it. So, so I don't have a problem with that, but knowing myself, if I had not saved for an RESP and I was, coughing up money every single year out of my cash flow to pay for their university, I, I don't know if I would have been uh, as relaxed about the whole thing. Uh, it, it conceivably, it would have felt differently, uh, but I can't really—it's it's, it's theoretical. I, I, I can't really say for sure.
2: I was, I was thinking more of you did not pay for the education, and it was student loans paid for the education, which ultimately would be paid back by the, the children. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's how I understood it. Okay. Yeah. So, so basically, would I have given advice if I knew they were getting in debt? In and, debt, yes. Would I, yeah. Would I, Would I have tried to basically shape it differently? Uh, I don't think so. Hmm. But, but again, like my my own view is that you know university programs they come in all flavors, uh, and you know some people out there will say you must take you know a quote unquote you know serious degree like, you know, do business, finance, law, whatever. Uh, I'm actually not from that school. Uh, You know, over the years in my teens, you know, I've hired people with such diverse backgrounds, sciences and the arts and social sciences and literature and and, and whatnot. Like, it could be anything. And I believe that you get a lot from any type of program that you take as long as you learn how to think independently Mm -hmm. and critically And and therefore, I would have not tried to push my kids in one field versus another.
2: Yeah, I used to be in that thought, not like the thought that you you should, if you're going to get something, there should be a pretty good outcome as soon as you graduate. Like there should be a $50,000 a year job waiting for you. But as I've listened to people like yourselves and actually studied the stats, I'm less inclined to think that way. I think it is not so much follow your passion, because like, I think that's not always the best idea. There should always be an end game and a, and a job at the end of it. But I, I do agree with you that, whereas I used to make fun of maybe the soft social science and, and you know, philosophies and the histories, I've spoken to a lot of business leaders and they said the exact same thing as you. Like People from the big tech firms, and they're saying they're looking for those critical thinking, problem-solving qualities, and a lot of that comes from you know, the, the fine arts or the social sciences. Yeah. So it's...
1: And, 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 and Mark, if I may just add a thought on that, it's interesting because earlier, you know, we were talking about algorithms and, and, and tech and all that. And what's interesting is that um, uh, there there are a lot of people out there that are actually working as translators, uh, n- not translating, you know, from French to English or, or, or any other language, but almost like translators and mediators between people who develop technology on one hand and on the other hand the customers who are humans mm-hmm. and, and that's where you see a lot of people in between that work um, with the technology teams but they understand the humans uh, very well. Uh, that is their trait, that's their skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they act as tr- uh, as translators or mediators to make sure that the experience that is being created in the dig- digital world is one that will resonate with the human. And that is actually one spot where, uh, you know, uh, liberal arts graduates, for instance, uh, can find an interesting spot. And, and when we were talking earlier about algorithms and, and people are scared and all that, there are jobs for people that can differentiate, uh, and and they don't have to be tech jobs.
2: Right. Yeah, for sure. And that any new disruption, quote unquote disruption, it leads to a whole another segment of jobs that come along with it. So yes, a certain amount will go away, but certain other ones will be created. The worry that I often hear is that the low skill jobs are going away because those are getting replaced by algorithms and robots yeah. and whatnot, and that you do have to work on those soft skills, exactly what you talked about, the empathy and the translation-type abilities. And that that's a bit of a worry for people because not everybody can afford to go to education or, or learn those skills. And maybe they can learn it on the job, but it's... It's it's maybe it's it's a bit of a, a space between those two sections from the low skill to the higher skills.
1: I, I agree, Mark, and 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 that's where we get pulled into bigger you know uh, you know societal questions. Mm-hmm. You know we are going through a lot of disruption, and and you know it, 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 it is you know our responsibility as as society to basically help people. Um, you know, go through this transition uh, in a way that is productive, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, benefits uh, individuals, but also, let's be honest, the greater good too. Um, and um, um, as opposed to you know uh, letting you know, uh, the game play out and just waiting to see where the chips will fall. I think we need to be a bit more thoughtful uh, than that.
2: Yeah, and the other thing is, Like going back to sort of that debt question, whether it's it's always worth going into student debt to learn these skills. Uh, I'm 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 debt adverse, like unless it's a very much appreciating asset and education could be that for sure. But there's so many options out there that are basically free Um, edx.com or YouTube. You can learn a lot of these skills for free, if you just put in the work at libraries and, and whatnot. So often I'll tell people, it's like, if you're not sure, if you've graduated, don't really know what you want to do. Often it's a good idea just to get a job, do whatever you did. Uh, for example, you did retail and you figured out how things work. And then when you have a better idea, then that that's when you want to spend the money so that you can concentrate and your your motivations higher that's what I find for a lot of people in the meantime if you don't have any money and you don't want to go into debt check out all the online free stuff there's there's a ton of it out there
1: yeah I, I agree that there's more and more you know free stuff uh, out there and you know one of the benefits of a um, you know a, a degree from a, a recognized institution is that um, Together with the knowledge and skills and and various competencies that you've developed, uh, you also get a seal of approval. Mm-hmm. It is a, it is a certification process, right? Um, I, I can't remember ever asking a somebody you know over the years for a transcript during a job interview. I'm, I'm sure it happens, but I've I never asked for one. But knowing that the person has uh, you know graduated from an institution that has standards, right, mm-hmm. uh, is in the form of certification. But today, you have more and more options for certifications that are offered uh, online, for instance, or through various types of uh, other schemes that are not traditional colleges and universities. And as long as those certifications are uh, recognized by the right employers, they are really as valuable as some of the traditional ones. hmm
2: yeah. the I guess the other benefit that I would see about going to a, a formal university or college is there's there's always a social aspect. You're, right. you're surrounded with people learning in the same environment. I think that's extremely valuable. And then you make connections. I mean, I'm, I'm still in touch with a lot of people from my college days and it's uh, more years than I'd like to say, but uh, you run into them and often you end up doing business with them or you get referrals from them. So that's, yeah. there's always, there's Ultimately, I think education is very key. Uh, I just like it when people are focused on it, and I, when possible, it's not always possible, when possible, try to avoid the debt.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, just one more thing on what you were saying. I agree completely, and I'll add one layer to that. So just yesterday at dinner, my, my son was telling us about this project they have to do in university, uh, and it's going to be a team of 10 people. And, you know, that's interesting because that creates a lot of complexity. Uh, team dynamics, mm-hmm. you know, will everybody be, you know, doing their best? You know, will anybody be, you know, not pulling their weight and all that? And, and you know, we're having this conversation at dinner. And, and my comment to my son was that, well, eventually when you get out there and you start working, um, in the real world, you work with people and learning to collaborate effectively uh, and deal with all these different approaches to doing things, and uh, is it, is just a very valuable skill. so So, to your point, I, I think that there is still value in that in learning in a more social and collective environment.
2: yeah, when I was I did a program for CBC last year, and we were talking about education and and uh, the various degrees. And I was reading up all the stats, and it did say, I mean, it's pretty clear that uh, some graduates had regrets about what they studied. And it also showed that people in sort of like the sciences and, and engineering stuff off the bat made quite a bit more money than the social sciences. But what was interesting is people evolved. So people in the social sciences did evolve. And if you looked not five years in the future, but 10 years in the future, they pretty much caught up. So their yeah. skills were recognized. It just took them some time to actually figure out how to take those skills and incorporate it into the business world.
1: I agree, and, and and I would I would not be surprised if during that transition of them catching up to that other cohort, they learned an awful lot of really interesting life lessons. And I'd be curious to see, like, fast forward another twenty years, uh, you know, how those life lessons, uh, you know, uh, would play out.
2: So. In terms of uh, the future um, and the robots and all these people who are fearful, would you say that your recommendation is to f- figure out skill sets, whatever they be that are adaptable, um, have some kind of human component that's very hard to replicate for for a robot or somebody to replicate and sort of focus on those skills that uh, you might start in one industry but are able to be transferable to various other industries as the economies change.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, I, I I would agree with that. And I, uh, in my own case, like I studied law in university, and then I did a master's in criminal law, and and lo and behold, I ended up working in the financial services industry. Uh, mostly, like my trade is leadership. You know, that's what I do, and 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 definitely like, I would say that the ability to take whatever skills you picked up, you know, throughout your various jobs, throughout whatever learning you did, whether it's on your own or in formal learning context or whatever, like, it is that, that flexibility uh, that, to me, is, 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 you know, one of the most highly desirable skills because you don't know what life is going to throw at you, right? So if your skill set is very, very rigid, Uh, you are extremely good at something that is very narrow, and that is your expertise, but it's like Mm -hmm. hard-coded. I I think you are in a more precarious position in a changing world than somebody who is uh, more innately flexible, uh, either because of life uh, life experiences uh, or uh, upbringing, education. uh, Like, whatever gives you flexibility uh, is, is better. And and uh, you know I, um, I I do martial arts. I, I I've been doing judo for forty years, and I, I, I teach uh, uh, judo at, at the University of Toronto. In fact, and what's interesting is that one of you know judo is actually uh, if if you translate it, um, it, it, it's actually the gentle way, as opposed gentle as opposed, as opposed to hard. And it's this notion that that gentle principle, like the uh, uh, as opposed to rigidity, uh, will actually, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, overwhelm uh, you know, anything that is rigid uh, and just leveraging brute force. Uh, and, and to me, that is something that I, uh, I learned through martial arts that, that I bring into my job and into my life. So I do believe in this notion of flexibility. Um, um, you know, you get pushed. Well, don't push back you know, with equal strength, give way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and giving way and being flexible is often a better approach to life in general uh, than having only one trick and that's the only one and you're going to stick to it.
2: Right. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So if I, if I brought my 14-year-old and 12-year-old who don't listen to me all that well, and if you had to give them a, some pieces of advice about just life in general and how to make the best of it and they hear these stories about robots taking over the world and what what kind of advice would you give them just general advice for the younger generation
1: yeah so I'll, I'll do my best, but giving advice is very difficult because it's very contextual, right? Like giving advice to one kid, you know, in a certain context versus somebody else in a very different context. So, so you know, take my, uh, my comments with uh, a grain of salt, right? It, it, it needs to be adjusted depending, depending on the context. Okay. But, but, but I think as a general rule, uh, uh, and, and I don't think there's any downside to this, keep an open mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, be willing to listen. Uh, Don't do what people tell you to do, but be willing to listen uh, to different points of view before you make up your own mind. I I, I think that's always good advice. Um, Another one would be um, be kind. Um, I I, I don't see any downside to that either. And, And being kind doesn't mean being weak. You can be incredibly tough and, and be, have the ability to get through really tough times and, 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 and still be kind. So that's never bad advice uh, either. So between the open-mindedness uh, and, and the, you know, the respect of being willing to listen to different points of view and keeping an open mind uh, and, 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 and this kindness you know, that you show to other people, um, those would be probably two of the most important things the, the last thing which probably would be related to being open to different points of view would be uh, curiosity. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're curious in life about any number of things, it doesn't matter what, but, but try, to, try to just, you know, try to learn all the time new things, um, and, and not just the things you're comfortable with, right? Curiosity beyond what you're just, like, used to, um, so I, I I think that would be generally good advice for pretty much anyone, I hope.
2: Yeah, uh, it's funny because I, I believe in allowing my kids to fail and fall down and get hurt all the time because I think that's going to make them stronger and that's how they learn. You learn by getting hurt. Learn not to do things, right? And my wife is the complete opposite. So she, she'll she do most of the cooking and I'd be like, oh, kids should cook their own. They're old enough. They should figure that let them give them the knives and everything, and and if they cut themselves, they cut themselves. Uh, when I when I uh, I mentioned that my son has to help me at the house, like if my wife was there watching what he was doing there, because I'm giving him like exacto knives and saws and everything else like that, and I'm like I'm watching him, and if you, I see him like cutting towards him, which is obviously a mistake that. Sure, he can learn from that, but then I'd end up paying for it because he'd be bleeding all over the place. I give him those types of things. But it's, it's interesting that um, there's two, definitely two ways of thought, uh, my way, her way. And then we always have to sort of compromise and then we'll see what happens, which one wins out. I, I can tell you right now her way almost always wins out because that's, that's the easier way whereas okay. I want them to push their comfort zone and do things they're not comfortable with, but it's really hard, I find it hard, to, to get people to push, those, push the envelopes and get out of their comfort zone.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's not easy, which is why you know, this, this journey that we're all on, it never ends, right? Like I'd like to think that even when I'm, I'm old and my body is no longer what it is today, I'd like to think that I'm going to be a better person than I am today because my life experiences and pushing myself and you know, those, those mistakes you make along the way and the failures that you learn from, I, they make you the person you are. And, and presumably with 30 more years of this behind me, I'll be a better person than I am today. But, but again, it's, it's this notion that you keep an open mind to the fact that you can improve, right? And that you're not shooting for perfection, but it's, it's, a, it's a quest for excellence, right? In excellence, you never reach it. You never stop, um, which is why, like, going back to my, you know, my, my comment about, you know, uh, martial arts and, and judo, my, my own sensei, my own teacher, um, is, is not a young man anymore uh, and uh, actually quite a, a, an old uh, 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 person. Uh, having said that, uh, at that age, uh, he brings the kind of wisdom that somebody my age you know, can't possibly have. So it's interesting that uh, although he doesn't toss people around anymore uh, because that's not what his body allows him to do, he can still teach mm-hmm. and people can still learn from him. So it's a journey. It never ends. And as long as you're open to improving yourself as you go, uh, you will keep getting better at whatever you do.
2: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I'll, I didn't... We're running out of time, but I want to ask one last question. And I, because I get asked this question all the time, um, sort of, yeah, gearing towards younger people when they're getting preparing for school or university or whatever they're doing. I often get asked: summer vacations, should kids work or should they go to summer school and study and prepare for the next for the next grade or whatnot? So I, I have my own opinions, which, which I would prefer people to do or which I think works out best, but I'd like to hear yours.
1: Yeah. So um, work, definitely. Uh, I think it's fantastic, like the experiences that you get, you know, get them. Uh, but I'm going to add something that, you know, maybe some people will disagree with. Um, I have never helped my kids, you know, get a job. Mm-hmm. Um they had to fend for themselves, find their own jobs. Um, and when I look at you know when I look at you know the accomplishments of somebody who was given a job by somebody in the family, or somebody who had to fend for themselves and find a job, I'd rather have a young person who found their own job, even if it's not as prestigious, mm-hmm. even if it's not like it, it's, you didn't work in the investment banking arm of a big bank you know, for the last two months. You were sweeping floors uh-huh. at Planet Wonderland. I'll take that uh, over the more glamorous job, uh, I think, any day of the week.
2: Yeah, that, that's interesting because I work with a lot of family businesses and one of their biggest fears for the patriarch or the matriarch, for their children is that sense of entitlement, which they they're almost fighting for that not to happen. So a lot of the successful family businesses that I, that I work with, it starts out that way. All their kids are sweeping sweeping the, the warehouses or doing the most menial job, and they really have to prove themselves before they get put into uh, a management position. So that seems to be a fairly common trait amongst a lot of these families. And ones where there is nepotism involved, they, they don't seem to do as well because the those kids didn't really earn their spot, and then they feel that the rest of the staff don't really give them as much respect as opposed to someone who started from the bottom. Exactly. I, I'm a big believer, by the way, in, in summer jobs. I, th- I think they're phenomenal. It's, it sort of teaches kids uh, another, another source of um, boss, I guess. You know, they're used to teachers, but now they got a boss and they, they learn what they like and what they don't like. They learn a lot about themselves, like the whole thing about time management. And uh, I always tell – people who are starting their jobs, you know, arrive early, stay a little bit late, you know, be, take, take initiative. Don't just sit around and wait for someone to tell you to do something. If you can see something that needs to be done, employers yeah. will look for those qualities like, and they'll pay for them. Like maybe not at the wow. beginning, but if you continue with those habits, uh, that's exa- those are the exact traits that almost almost all employers are looking for.
1: Well, Mark, my, 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 my first ever job, you know, was a summer job, and I was the night janitor in a bookstore. <laughs> and, and, listen, I learned a lot. I, I learned, you know, about things I liked and I didn't like, and, you know, I had, there were only two of us in the store, you know, from 11 p.m. until 6 a.m. And we had a blast. We did a good, great job. Um, I learned that I'd rather do something else. Uh, mm-hmm. which was actually a good lesson for me, like it it it, it, it kind of oriented me in, in, in a different way. Um, it's all good.
2: Yeah, that's great. So thank you very much for your time. Is there before we go, is there anything I should have asked you that we didn't cover that you'd like to I don't bring
1: think up? So this was uh, really a great conversation. And I really enjoyed it.
2: Awesome, me too. <laughs>
0: My Financial Life is a production of Alumni UBC. Thank you to our host, Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, and our guest, Bernard Latong, the head of Wealth and Asset Management Canada at Manulife for participating in this episode. We would also like to thank Manulife for sponsoring this episode.